You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hi, everyone. I'm Ariel Kane, PPI's Director of Healthcare Policy. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Radically Pragmatic. Today, we have a conversation that we held last week about COVID-19 in 2022. We hosted Congresswoman Lori Trahan, Dr. Lena Wen, Reka Lakshmananen, who is a uh, vaccine expert, and Emily G, Vice President at the Center for American Progress, uh, for a conversation around how we should be thinking about COVID, preventing COVID transmission, but also you know, managing that against the need to live a normal life and resuming normal activity with education, health, social activities, and work. We hope that you'll find the conversation interesting and thought-provoking, and if you're interested in learning more, you'll either subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Twitter at PPI. My personal Twitter is at Ariel Sophia, and thank you so much for listening. I'm really excited to have you guys all here because you're all coming from such a different lens, and I think that that's important to consider. In recent weeks, there seems to have been a shift in thinking around COVID-19. The Biden administration has moved to expand testing and access to masks, but some of his own advisors have critiqued, though very politely, um, the administration calling for a new domestic COVID-19 strategy. And these experts seem to think we need to establish a new normal of living with the virus indefinitely. So with that as the starting point, Congressman Trahan, um, how do you, you think we should balance the trade-offs of a more isolated life uh, where we're working remotely with fewer in-person events that is accompanied by depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, an increase in violence, and then the need to limit the spread of the virus to protect um, vulnerable people? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, And I am uh, elated that the administration is taking uh, steps as they have adjusted throughout this pandemic uh, from vaccines to testing and masking. Uh, Look, the the COVID-19 pandemic, the resulting economic recession has have negatively impacted and affected many people's mental health. It's created new barriers for people already suffering from mental illness illness and substance use disorders. Uh, You know, the CDC data indicates that more than 100,000 Americans died from a drug overdose from April 2020 to April 2021. That's a staggering number. Uh, And we know that there are flexibilities that have been put in place for individuals suffering from substance use disorder to access treatment during COVID. There are still too many barriers in place uh, that make it difficult uh, to access proper treatment. Additionally, Look, the behavioral health workforce, uh, as we are seeing across healthcare workforces, is experiencing a shortage in providers, uh, further limiting access to care. So even with the embrace of telehealth uh, and other innovative ways to access care, overall, the mental health crisis in this nation has 
just worsened uh, due to COVID-19. And I think it's important to stress the fact that the single most important thing that we can do uh, to re return to normal, to help our small businesses, to protect our communities, to protect our mental health and realize a new normal is just to get everyone vaccinated. Uh, you know, the, the Omicron variant is present in each of our communities right now. I just attended a public gathering uh, moments ago and chances are I was in contact uh, with the virus. At this point, it really is up to each individual to assess their own risk, whatever that may mean for them about this virus. But being fully vaccinated and boosted significantly increases protections from COVID-19, and it significantly decreases uh, the chances of hospitalization and death. And the fastest we, faster we get to you know, higher vaccination rate, uh, the, the more we're going to be able to um, stop seeing surges on our hospitals, uh, stop contending with, you know, kids sent home from school, I've got elementary school kids myself, uh, and we will be able to uh, not be living so much in isolation or in remote uh, environments and be back, um, be back, you know, sort of in community with others. Can I add to um, what the Congresswoman just, just mentioned, because I really appreciate your mentioning about the other impacts that we've been seeing during COVID, the isolation, the stress, depression and anxiety that children, working families, all people have gone through, the increase in overdose, addiction, um, the epidemic of obesity that was already a major problem, but has certainly not gotten better. It's only gotten worse in part because of sedentary activity and also in part because our so many of our resources have been diverted away from other core public health issues. Emily, I think, had mentioned about the need to bolster public health infrastructure altogether, which is something that that I cannot agree with more, but just want to add too that at some point we also have to recognize, look, we are in year three, entering year three of this pandemic. Public health is not just about the absence of COVID. Good health for the individual is not just about not getting infected. It's also about other things. I mean, I see patients and it's it breaks my heart to see somebody who is vaccinated and boosted and therefore at low, very low risk, especially if they're generally healthy for severe illness, who is not seeing their family, who is not going to the gym, who is not going to all their normal activities because they're so afraid of COVID. And look, I understand why. I, I don't judge somebody else for their values, except that we also have an obligation to help individuals figure out how to balance all these different risks in their lives. And again, absence of COVID is not the only thing that they need to be weighing in their lives. If going to the gym is important for their physical and mental health, if seeing their family or traveling is important, there is risk, but there's also value in engaging in these other activities. One more thing I want to mention, and one of the reasons I, I've been so excited to be engaged with PPI in the past too, is that we have to be practical. Public health is about public trust. You're not going to get anywhere in public health if you're not meeting people where they are. Um, as others have mentioned, that certainly is the case for vaccines, right? That when we look at vaccines, we have to understand why it is that people are hesitant to meet people where they are with compassion. But it's also meeting people where they are with their understanding of COVID. Even though right now, yes, it is very true that our healthcare systems are at the brink and there are many impacts to society. But there are also many people who have moved on from COVID and are not 
in the mentality of um, of restricting themselves at, at, uh, anymore. If we don't meet people where they are, then our advice will fall on deaf ears. And that's going to be a really big challenge if we have new variants arise in the future. So I am really in favor of peeling back mandates when, wherever possible right now so that when we have a next variant or another public health emergency, we will have the trust to be able to put it back. We have to meet people where they are with their understanding of this moment too. Thank you, Dr. Wen. Actually, I, I wanted to sort of build on that question um, relating to vaccines. So, you know, traditionally vaccines were looked on very favorably as preventing disease. We can think back to like polio vaccine where without mandates, people lined up to get the shot. Um, and, and now, you know, we're having such politicization of it that there's become almost like a partisan divide around vaccines. I was hoping, uh, Reka, you could talk a little bit about, you know, how do we think about that and how do we meet people where they are, whether it's um, people who are just vaccine hesitant or whether they're anti-vax and how do we not lump those two groups together and so that we can effectively bring people along. So uh, there's, a, there's a lot baked into that. You know, I think, you know, first and foremost, um, when you look at sort of the history of vaccines and the history of vaccination, you know, people who um, have been hesitant or people who are, you know, very strongly opposed to vaccination is really not new. I mean, we saw it, you know, uh, hundreds of years ago with the smallpox vaccine when, um, you know, a lot of cartoon, you know, character, caricatures were kind of distributed um, at, the, at the town hall square about, um, about smallpox vaccines and what could potentially lead to that. And so, you know, it, it, it's not necessarily a new phenomenon. I think what has happened obviously is, you know, we've seen this acceleration in technology and how we share information and the medium in which we share information information is so, so fast and it's so, so rampant that, you know, people are consuming so much information at a very fast clip and also trying to discern, you know, which is the right information and, and which is, you know, which is not the factual information. You know, I think the research, you know, it's very clear that healthcare providers continue to be a trusted source when it comes to um, a person's um, Healthcare and helping them to to you know make make a decision that's in the best interest of themselves and and for their family and you know I think Dr. Wen said something really um, poignant in that it's really important right now to kind of you know meet people in the middle. I think there's a small group of individuals and and, and folks that are um, capitalizing on people's fears. Um, and so that has led to, you know, this division that we're, that we're seeing um, and, the, and, you know, trying to make, you know, vaccination um, a, a political issue. But, you know, it's the old adage that, you know, public health um, and, um, you know, infectious disease outbreaks um, have absolutely no borders. They have no borders in our neighborhoods, in our communities, um, in our counties, in our states, and across the globe. And so it's it's non-discriminant, and it's non-discriminant against, you know, it doesn't pick and choose political parties. But I, I think what we have to sort of recognize is kind of coming back and meeting people where they are. And that includes having conversations. It's both listening and answering people's questions. And so, you know, when we look at individuals who are vaccine hesitant, um, you're exactly right in the sense that we can't assume that, you know, everyone who um, is hesitant, meaning someone's got a question about, um, about the vaccine, is automatically 
you know, vehemently opposed to vaccination. That's, that's not necessarily the case. You know, it takes a little bit of patience, asking really good questions, um, reserving opinions, um, you know, and holding back, um, you know, kind of your thoughts and really trying to drill down to understand, you know, where that origin of hesitancy is coming from, what is motivating them to not get vaccinated, um, or even what's motivating people to get vaccinated. I, I think there's a lot of insight into that. Um, at the end of the day, people who um, are strongly opposed to vaccination um, they're typically opposed to any vaccination, and and they and they represent a very small percentage, um, you know, of our overall community. What we really have to do is, you know, be thoughtful and and just have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with with people to understand, you know, where where they are and help give them the right tools and the right information to again make that decision that they feel is in the best interest, um, you know, for themselves and and for their loved ones. Um, additionally, you know, Dr. Dr. Wen mentioned, you know, um, you know, requirements. You know, we have so many different effective public health tools in the toolbox. Um, you know, requirements um, is one tool, but we have a lot of tools way before that. Um, you know, we're strong, strong advocates in education. Um, it is longer. It is a longer cycle, but again, it's part of that building trust where you're listening, you're asking questions, and then you're giving you know, good pieces of information to help build out that story um, for that person. You know, at, at the end of the day, when we're looking at and evaluating policies, we're trying to look at the entire continuum. You know, what can we do to motivate and incentivize people to get vaccinated? And you know, it's sometimes taking a step back where we feel like we need to have the big stick in order to move people along, where instead we have lots of carrots available. And you know, we've seen that at various levels. You know, we've seen it with employers who are giving you know, their employees some time off to go and get uh, themselves vaccinated. You know, we're seeing vaccine clinics coming to you know, very convenient sites. Those are all you know, small mini milestones that we can try to st strive for and achieve to help move people along. There may be a point where we have to reevaluate all those different interventions and look at something that's more broader scale. But in the meantime, it is really kind of getting down to that micro level, you know, doing some handholding. You know, we're all in it together to get people more comfortable, comfortable and more motivated to ultimately get vaccinated. Thanks for that. Something I always try and just remind myself to stay a little bit humble is that lots of purely rational people who quote unquote believe in science do things anecdotally all the time. You know, whether it's taking things to like boost our immune system or whatever, we don't always behave in rational ways. And so if we can sort of um, keep some humility when we talk about uh, vaccine hesitancy and remind ourselves that that we don't always behave 100% rational all the time. I think that that can help, you know, create a common bond and some trust. Um, something that I, I wanted to ask Emily about is, you know, uh, is there a appropriate place for, you know, vaccine requirements or mandates? And how do we think about, you know, when they are effective and when maybe they the backlash against them is worse than the benefit that they create? How do we sort of think about those those trade-offs? Thanks for that question. I believe vaccine mandates are a really important tool that we have uh, to get people vaccinated. That said, all the tools that Rekha just talked about, incentives, access to better information, paid leave to get vac vaccinated, and also uh, recover from side effects, 
should be implemented in conjunction with vaccine mandates. I think it's important that we, you know, have this get, give people a really strong nudge to get vaccinated, but also keep supporting them and understand that that people might might lack information or don't feel like they don't have time off or are concerned about missing work, and be non judgmental about those who still remain unvaccinated. Um, you know, that said, we know from the evidence that vaccine mandates are very effective. United Airlines was one of the first companies to uh, have an employer uh, vaccine mandate, even before the uh, Biden administration's OSHA rule, which was struck down by the court, which is a huge setback. But even before that rule was, was announced, uh, United Airlines required all its employees to get vaccinated and it had a 99% compliance rate, which is terrific. And during this past Omicron surge, because it had such a high vaccination rate among its uh, employees, they had a really, really low rate of um, illness and, uh, you know, fortunately did not have any deaths among their employees. Um, Fox News is another organization that mandated uh, vaccination, had 90% of their employees um, get vaccinated when they had an announcement about that. Um, New York State also successfully implemented a, a nursing home vaccination mandate to go from 75 to 92% within the first month of their mandate to help protect nursing home residents and nursing home staff. Um, so these, these mandates do work. Uh, and this is not a new concept. You know, the, the Supreme Court's first case upholding a vaccine mandate was back in 1905. Um, and, uh, you know, we all know from either our own experience or if we have kids, that childhood immunizations are required for schools and also among colleges and universities, which I think is one reason why we've seen higher ed institutions at the forefront of requiring not just vaccines, but also boosters for attendance. A hundred percent agree with every, you know, with what um, everything that she's saying. I, I think, you know, one of the things that we have to be mindful of, and again, I'm kind of looking at it from a state perspective, is we want to ensure that we've got all those tools in the toolbox available, whether we use one, whether we use all of them. And I think, you know, what we saw last year at, you know, looking at state legislatures across the, the country, um, you know, I, I keep tabs on, you know, the, the kinds of legislation that's getting filed um, in state legislatures. And, you know, of course, uh, over the course of 2021, um, you know, we saw over 1300 vaccine related bills filed in state legislatures. And it was it was the gamut, you know, they were um, uh, legislation to help continue to move, um, you know, and build up the local or the state, um, you know, policy, vaccine policy infrastructure. But over half of those bills were actually, um, you know, anti-vaccination, whether it was related to COVID or will, whether it was related to, um, to you know, other um, vaccinations that would ultimately break down, you know, the policy infrastructure and then potentially you know, uh, decrease, uh, decrease vaccination rates. And, you know, and some of those, you know, pieces of legislation wanted to remove those kinds of tools from the toolbox. And so I think it's really important to recognize that, you know, we, we cannot be premature in any of this, especially when it comes to, to policies, because there are knee-jerk reactions, because there's this um, impetus to make it make it political. You know, decisions are being made to say, "Wait a minute, no, we're gonna we're not we're gonna prohibit." you know, employers from, you know, requiring vaccines. We're going to prohibit schools from doing that. Um, you know, again, to Emily's point, we know, you know, over time, you know, those kinds of tools like requirements have been effective. We may not have to implement that, but we shouldn't also, you know, have this reaction where we remove that from the arsenal of public health officials um, and then, you know, have to find alternative ways and slower ways to get people vaccinated.
Can I add to this because I am a strong proponent of vaccine requirements and I want to make the case for why from a public health standpoint. You know, there's been, I think, an unfortunate narrative that's built that vaccines protect you against severe illness, but they don't do much when it comes to protecting you from infection. That's not true. It is true that the primary reason for vaccines and the most important reason for them is to prevent you from getting hospitalized and, and dying, right? I mean, that's really important. And that's a tool that we did not have even last year at this time widely available. And COVID was something that was really feared because people thought that they might die if they get it. I mean, it's wonderful to take that off the table for the vast majority of vaccinated individuals because they won't die now that they're vaccinated. That's great. But we also know that individuals who are vaccinated are five times less likely to contract COVID compared to somebody who is unvaccinated. That difference is more pronounced for individuals who are vaccinated and boosted. Having that third dose reduces the chance of symptomatic infection, not just severe illness, but infection compared to somebody who is unvaccinated. You know, I have a lot of people asking me, what's the point of getting vaccinated if I'm still going to get COVID? But you're five times less likely to have COVID compared to somebody who is unvaccinated. Other people will use that same argument because, look, breakthrough infections do happen. But why do they happen? I think of the vaccine as a very good raincoat. It's protecting you well when there's a drizzle. But if you are in a thunderstorm all the time, at some point you're going to get wet. The reason why we're having breakthrough infections isn't that the vaccines aren't working. It's that there is so much virus around us. And that's the reason why at times of high viral transmission, you also need a mask. You also need testing. You also need these other layers, ventilation to protect you. But it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the vaccines. And to this point about why do we want vaccine requirements in a workplace or in a school? It's not because we just somehow want, you know, it's often framed as control or power and the government is making you do something no they're trying to ensure workplace safety if i have to be in a room shoulder to shoulder with people for eight hours a day and i uh, and i have to choose whether i want them to be vaccinated or unvaccinated if i know that someone who is vaccinated is five times less likely to have covid compared to the unvaccinated person of course i would rather be in a room with people who are all vaccinated that said i very much take um the other points that have been raised about could vaccine requirements backfire? And I think there is a school of thought that now we're seeing um, the backlash, if you will, to vaccines bleed into other immunizations. And that would set us back so many years when it comes to other routine immunizations that we have long accepted. So I am in favor of in a sense, thinking of vaccine requirements like we think about the easy pass or um, or thinking about this as the uh, the TSA pre-check line at the airport, that everybody can still go to work or go to school or whatever the case is. But if you are unvaccinated, maybe you have to be tested on a regular basis. Maybe you still have to be wearing a mask. But if you are vaccinated, you can opt out of those things. To me, that's a much better way of framing it. You're not really restricting people from doing something and saying you have to get vaccinated. You're saying we are all for workplace safety. A workplace that doesn't have testing, masking, or vaccines is unsafe. So you need to have some of these elements. But if you have testing and masking, you know, um, you can be unvaccinated. But if you're vaccinated, you can opt out of those other things. I think to me, that's a better policy framework going forward.
that's such great framing around that. Um, and something I was thinking about what, what Emily said about boosters, and I wanted to turn to Congresswoman Trahan, you know, we're, we're living in this world where the evidence is constantly changing, and I think that's really difficult for policymakers. Um, and so how do we think about policy decisions, whether they be um, boosters or quarantine requirements and all these things as we're living with incomplete data and in a, an evolving situation? It is a, uh, it's a, it's a great question. And I think one that we're all thinking about sort of on the fly as we go, of course, we're all talking about pandemic preparedness, trying to wring out the lessons um, of, you know, where we could have been better prepared, you know, from the start of, of COVID. Um, and then we're noticing that we have to adjust in real time uh, because of variants. Uh, you know, the CDC has had to update its guidance throughout the course of the pandemic uh, as new data has become available and as the virus has changed. Uh, you know, no data set is perfect. Uh, we always need to make decisions based off of an imperfect picture. Um, public health analysts are learning ways to pair quantitative data with qualitative data, healthcare workers, community leaders. They all have stories and information about what this vaccine uh, you know, rollout looks like on the ground, that is valuable information and can highlight gaps in, in traditional sort of data sets, how we think about. I have a number of initiatives focused on increasing researcher access to data. Uh, I'll give you one example. It's, uh, I have the Social Media Data Act, um, which would give researchers, independent researchers, academic researchers who study the way health information spreads online, access to data currently you know, locked inside of our large companies like Google and Facebook. My office has been working uh, and looking into the ways that gaps in medical data on diverse patient populations is leading to discrimination in medical software applications. And, uh, you know, this is an issue I hope the Pandemic Preparedness Caucus, which I chair, uh, co-chair, uh, can address because we have technology available to make public health data sets more complete accurate and shareable in a way that protects privacy. Um, and we need to do better uh, in, the, in the next emergency. And frankly, we need to do better as we, uh, as, you know, we respond to this one. Yeah, I mean, obviously uh, having data silos, you know, whether it's health insurance information or public health data, or, you know, just a decentralized healthcare system has become a hindrance in this a situation when we're trying to respond so quickly with incomplete information. Emily, I wanted to see if you had any thoughts on rapid testing. Speaking from my own experience, which is anecdotal, obviously, um, I was symptomatic and took multiple rapid tests and they were negative. Uh, and so I thought I must just have the flu. I It was over Christmas. I didn't infect anyone. But on Christmas Day, I decided to take another one and it was positive. Um, and by that point, I was already on the mend. And so, you know, I'm thinking about how do we think about testing and our testing strategy if rapid tests are catching infections as early as they were with previous variants. I don't know That's if you have any thoughts on the issue. <laughs> yes. And I think it also relates to your previous question, thinking about how do you make policy decisions with tools you know, based on incomplete information or even having tools that might not be 100% perfect. And I think, you know, this highlights an area where we could use some better clear science communication about what tools are out there and how we use them. Um, I've, you know, I've, I've heard from, you know, not just your question, but other families and friends um, who've said, you know, but I've heard rapid tests don't work. And I think it's, that's not, that shouldn't be the actual takeaway. 
it is true that rapid tests are less sensitive than a PCR or viral test, um, but they are still really important tools for public health. Um, a rapid test generally is a good sign of whether you right now are infectious, um, and they can be used for public health um, to, you know, to uh, support surveillance, to reduce transmission rates by having people say test in the workplace or test at school. Um, and they can also help us reduce infections, um, which then you know, lead to cases of hospitalization and even death. Um, so I think it's really important that throughout the pandemic, we, we not let the perfect become the enemy of the good. Uh, I think this also happened to us with masks initially, where um, in addition to the problem of not having enough medical grade masks for healthcare workers on the front lines in 2020, um, there was also a lot of concern about, you know, general public maybe shouldn't wear N95s because they can't ensure a good fit. Now we know that, uh, particularly for Omicron, it's really important that people upgrade their masks, that surgical is better than cloth, and that KN95s are better than, you know, surgical procedure masks, and the N95s even if you don't have a perfect, you know, the perfect fit that you might need for a factory or for a hospital, um, that provides the general public with better protection than the cloth masks that many of us had been wearing um, for the first couple of years of the pandemic. So, you know, that's it. I think we, as far as testing, I think this is why we need to um, have continued government uh, involvement and preparedness, um, whether that's, you know, continuing to ensure that we have stockpiles and data infrastructure to support response, um, but also having a government that will respond quickly if we need to modify, um, say, the formulation of the vaccine in the future or um, modify the type of test that we have on the market. That's a great point. And then I just wanted to end our discussion, maybe if you get everyone's thoughts, starting with you, Reka, on, you know, going forward, what are the lessons of COVID-19 and how can the U.S. be better prepared for the next pandemic, particularly if it isn't a respiratory virus? I, I think, you know, one of the, the biggest takeaways is clear, concise, and as transparent communication as possible right from the very, very beginning. Um, you know, from the, from the start of the pandemic, um, you know, we had a lot of um, disconnect in terms of the kinds of communication um, and the quality of communication that was being pushed out to, uh, to the general public. Um, you know, allowing, um, you know, our public health experts uh, to be the primary guiding voice. I mean, they've spent their careers, um, you know, um, understanding these kinds of issues and preparing for these, um, preparing for some and then others that, you know, we're kind of learning as we go along. But really, you know, um, you know, elevating them as, you know, the, the trusted source and in, in, in the voice. And so I think, you know, coming away from this as we're kind of taking stock of everything is, um, you know, being being as forthright and truthful with the public um, and, you know, in some ways also acknowledging that if, if we don't have the answers or if they don't have the answers, the answers aren't there yet. Um, but, you know, hopefully they're coming. And I think, you know, that is, you know, a pill that while we may not want to necessarily swallow, I think we, we can swallow and not and not holding back information. I, I think that's, um, you know, intentionally, unintentionally regardless of the case, it's just being as forthright and as simply communicating the issue to the public. So I think a couple of lessons that we need to take away are one, you know, echoing that, um, the importance of preparedness and not letting down our guard um, when things start looking up. Um, we need to, you know, prepare for the worst, uh, you know, make sure that, our, that we replenish the national stockpile with the things that we might need, um, ensuring that production lines are ready to, um, you know, 
are, are there and ready for, for a COVID surge, um, but also thinking in the long term about uh, ensuring that we have better systems for surveillance um, and that um, you know, we're going to have uh, institutions in place that will allow for a more nimble COVID response or a pandemic response um, in the future. And then secondly, I think we can also look to the rest of the world for lessons on what's working and what's not working. Um, and I think you know, early on, we saw a lot of uh, countries in Asia that were doing a, a really good job with uh, contact tracing and testing and also mask wearing that helped key cases down um, in those places. And um, th those should have been instructive. Dr. Wen? I want to agree with um, with what Rika and Emily just said. Um, I am also um, just want to put a put an additional note on the importance of transparency. There has been a lot of trust lost in this response initially because the previous administration did not listen to scientists. And then, unfortunately, this administration has also had a number of missteps around messaging and uh, prematurely initially dropping mask mandates, then um, muddled messaging on boosters, and now the latest confusion around isolation. I think it comes down to having an explanation of why policy changes are occurring. We understand that in the middle of a pandemic where there's a lot of new science emerging, new policies, new ways of understanding things, that there will be change. But it's important to understand if the changes are made because of new science or because they're made due to some other factors, which are understandable. For example, if the isolation guidance, the shortened isolation guidelines were explained as our essential workers are not able to come to work and we're going to have a total collapse of our healthcare system, that's the reason why we need to shorten the isolation. That would be a lot more understandable than we're just going to do it. And it's unclear that it's actually evidence-based. And so I think having a new, um, a better way of communicating to the public, explaining why decisions are made will be essential to restoring a lot of trust that unfortunately has been eroded. One last thing I'll say about this is COVID has certainly unmasked a lot of issues. It didn't create health disparities, but we have certainly seen health disparities play out in a way that may not have been apparent before. Um, COVID did not create the issues around social determinants of health and how health is interrelated to so many other factors, including food and housing and so forth, but it has unveiled them. And so I hope that we're not going to let this crisis go to waste in the sense that we will have seen the problems in our healthcare system and the lack of investment in public health writ large, and there will be renewed attention to focusing on these issues in time to come. And Congresswoman Trahan, any closing thoughts? Yes, I mean, I'll echo um, what all the panelists have said uh, in terms of lessons learned. I mean, look, the, the politicization of public health and our response to COVID has cost lives, right? We, I think we have an obligation to work together uh, to ensure that nothing like this ever happens again. I mean, we can't afford to get flat footed. Uh, you know, back in March of 2020, very early on in the pandemic, you know, I co-founded with my Republican colleagues as well, the Pandemic Preparedness Caucus to ensure that, you know, we achieve that goal. I mean, I think a couple of things that we recognize is the need for a permanent testing infrastructure and a capability to ramp up whenever necessary. Uh, we recognize that um, we need a strengthened public health and medical workforce, both keeping current medical professionals who are feeling the burnout uh, and as well as bolstering the, the pipeline of infectious disease specialists who have proven essential over the past two years. And, and I think finally, we recognize that we have to build consensus to achieve those goals, um, you know, in, in our communities on the ground with bipartisan solutions in Washington, because that's 
what this is going to take to solve, you know, the glaring problems that COVID has highlighted and, uh, and exacerbated. I think it's safe to say that we're definitely all sick of COVID, but obviously it's the reality that we're living in. Um, and so I just think it's so important to consider, you know, what the U.S. got right, um, what we got wrong, and how we can prepare to, for the future. Thank you everyone so much. Have a wonderful afternoon. I hope everyone stays healthy. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.